Please, join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us eyes to see the path you have given us, ears to hear your call for us to grow, and hearts impassioned with the desire to serve you in the faces of our neighbors and strangers. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Hear these words. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We've entered a new series talking about everyday epiphany uh, during this season of epiphany. Uh, and the first question that comes to mind is, I wonder how old you have to be to be considered an adult uh, in today's day and age. Uh, I did youth ministry for a long time, and I once took a group of uh, middle schoolers uh, down to this place called Pomeroy, Ohio. It's, uh, it's about this big on the map, and uh, it's down by the river valley, and we were going to do some work in the Appalachian area. And uh, I gathered all the youth together, and then uh, someone came up to me and said, uh, so who are the adults who are going on the trip? And <laughs> I said, um, well, I'm, I'm one of them. My wife's going. Uh, and they're like, no, really. Who are the adults who are going on the trip? Uh, and, you know, my whole life has been like that because I got baby face. It just happens. Uh, it's okay. Uh, but I'm 33 years old, in case you were wondering. Uh, traditionally, that's how old Jesus was when he was crucified. Uh, and in Jewish society, you had to be 30 years old to be considered an elder in that uh, time and day. In America, you have to be 35 years old to be president. That's the same age you have to be if you want to be president of Mexico. I checked. Just curious. Just in case you're curious. I don't know. Age is a funny thing. And there are uh, lots of things that come with age, or at least that's uh, what the saying is. Um, like increased trips to the doctor, uh, that comes with age, right? I go to the doctor more frequently than when I was young. Uh, increasing concern over my blood pressure and triglyceride levels and things that I don't understand anything about. And I just nod my head and say, okay, doc, I hear you, right? I'll be concerned about that with you. Um, they seem to come with age. And I wonder what else comes with age. Wisdom. Wisdom, that seems to come with age. I think that I'm a heck of a lot wiser today in my 30s than I was when I was 20. Right? I look back at 20-year-old Josh and say, oh, that's cute. But I know, right, in 10 years' time, when I'm 40-year-old Josh, I'm going to look back and say, oh, 
30-year-old Josh, that was cute. All right, and 10 more years will pass, and I'll be 50, and I'll look back and say, oh, 40-year-old Josh thought he had it together. Little did he know, right? And then I know 10 more years will pass, and 60-year-old Josh will say, oh, that was cute. Look at that lineage of people who thought they were wise. No, wisdom comes with age. At least I hope so, that as we get older, we get wiser. And I wonder what else comes with age. Money, right? Money, that seems to come with age. You get older, you have more experience, you make more. That makes sense. Um, And I wonder what else comes with age. I wonder if uh, pessimism comes with age. Maybe too real? Uh, I'm not not sure. But I believe firmly that there are complex emotions and concepts that increase as we get older. I think resentment is one, right? Name an eight-year-old that is sitting there and is resentful, right? You can't. But if I told you to name a 45 or a 50-year-old who's resentful, you probably got at least half a dozen names in your head right now. Resentment is something that sort of builds with age. Fear and anxiety is another one. Anxiety seems to have reached epidemic proportions in our society today. And fear as well, fear of the other, fear of the unknown, or fear of the different. Perhaps things like fear and anxiety have always been around in every society that's ever existed. Um, But if you're like me, as you get older, the temptation to succumb to fear And to succumb to anxiety is just so natural, is it not? There are certain things that are just plain difficult to kind of cultivate and build within ourselves. Because it's easier to fear than to love. It's easier to be resentful than to be filled with gratitude. It's easier to be sarcastic than authentic. And it's easier to be pessimistic than filled with joy, and it's easier to be dismayed than filled with hope. So you might be saying, okay, Josh, I agree with you, but like how in the world do I go about increasing things like gratitude and love and authenticity and joy and hope? And I'm glad that you asked that question because we're going to be sitting with this very topic for the next three weeks as we walk through Epiphany. And now some of you might be saying, um, I don't even know what Epiphany is, right? Great. You're not alone. It's okay. I'm here to kind of get us all up to speed, make sure we're all on the same page when we talk about what Epiphany is. Epiphany is a season in the church that begins with the day of Epiphany. I know that's not helpful. And it's right after Christmas time, and it goes all the way up to Ash Wednesday, which starts our season of Lent. And Epiphany is all about this. The fundamental theme of Epiphany is God revealing God's self to us as humankind. That's the fundamental theme of Epiphany. That's it. We've read stories about the Magi visiting Jesus. We read stories about Jesus' baptism. We read the stories of Jesus performing miracles and revealing himself to his disciples and others and so on. And that is what Epiphany is all about. It's about God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And in that regard, I love the season of Epiphany. It is so helpful for me in my faith journey as I think about this question about God revealing God's self. Because that centers on another question, right, that I often ask. What in the world can I know about God? And when I ask that question, I pull from one of my friends in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s named Karl Barth. He's a great uh, theologian, and he says, what can you know about God? And he answers this with another question. What can you know about God? Well, how has God revealed God's self to us? 
So what can you know about God? Well, God has revealed God's self in Jesus, and that's what you can know about God. So Jesus acts in loving ways. Therefore, God is a God of love. Jesus seems to have a, a peace that passes all understanding. Therefore, God is a God of peace. Jesus is a person who seems to, to hope in tomorrow, in the future, and build a whole church on a guy named Peter and his disciples and says, on you, I'll build my church, and the very powers of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is a, a person of hope, so God is a person of hope. I think that's a powerful question. What can we know about God? How has God revealed God's self? These are the questions that Epiphany and the season of Epiphany wrestle with. It's helpful for me. And so we look around and we ask questions like, well, where is God moving? Where is God revealing God's self? Where are there signs of hope? And where are there signs of joy in the world around us? Our scripture today came from the passage in Luke. And if it sounds familiar, that's because it is. You can find it in Matthew, and you can find it in Mark as well, although they're very different. Those three are called the synoptic, which means same, but there's nuances to each little passage that you can read in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Luke puts a different spin on things, and Matthew thinks it happened this way, and Mark says it happened this way. And those three perspectives come together to form a beautiful mosaic of what happened. So when we read Luke, we hear Luke's voice. And Luke has some interesting things that I want to kind of just stop for a moment kind of sit with and uh, ponder over with you all. There's three things that stick out to me from this passage. The first is, if John's baptism, right, is tied to repentance and sort of uh, confession and all of that, do you hear my question already? If John's baptism is tied to repentance and Jesus, the Son of God, is coming to get baptized, and it's tied to repent. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Why does Jesus need to do this? Now, I'll tell you right now, I don't know, right? It is complicated. I think it is mysterious. I have some points that I'm going to work around that I think might be helpful to think about. And maybe when I'm 80, I'll look back and say, oh, clearly, I know the answer now. Uh, But who knows, right? Wisdom comes with age. Uh, So these are some things that I think are happening. When you look at the Gospel of Luke, First and foremost, Luke does a whole entire genealogy of Jesus, right? And Luke roots Jesus' kind of genealogy in Adam. It's not necessarily in some other things. You look at Matthew, he does it differently. It comes from David, but Luke uh, roots it in Adam. And it's an interesting kind of move. You have to ask the question, why? Why does Luke root Jesus' lineage in Adam? Well, first and foremost, it's because where Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. Luke wants us to see this kind of progression that Jesus is the perfection of Adam. And that Adam also is this, uh, that he was born from and into a world that's full of systems and full of sin and selfishness. And Jesus cannot escape that incarnation. Jesus was born into the same world that Adam inhabits, that we all inhabit. Jesus is a part of it. Also, Jesus aligns his will with God in his baptism. It's interesting that you think about Adam being in line with God, right? You look at the garden, they walked hand in hand, and they knew each other as friend, but Adam deviates from God's will. But you look at Jesus, 
who walks hand in hand, who knows God. And in his baptism, he aligns himself with God's will. Where Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. I think that's kind of the first reason why this is happening. The second thing that kind of jumps out at me from this Luke passage is that Jesus is identifying with all the people. Uh, The verse says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. If you read Matthew or Mark, it seems almost like Jesus kind of finds John and does it by himself. He's sort of like the spotlight is on him. But in the uh, Gospel of Luke that we heard, he like lines up with everybody else who's going down to the river. This is a, a communal practice. Jesus does it with everyone. He presents himself for baptism as an act of solidarity with a nation in a world of sinners. A commentator named Robert Brealey, he wrote this, and I thought it was so good, I just want to quote it to you all. He said, when the line of downtrodden and sin-sick people formed to go down to the river in hopes of new beginnings, Jesus joined them. It's like Jesus sees what's going on with John and the ministry of John, and they're clamoring for a new beginning. Jesus says, I'm with y'all. We're going down to the river for a new beginning to be found in God and God alone. It's at his baptism that Jesus identifies with the damaged and broken folks who need no one else but God. A third thing that kind of hops out at me from the passages we heard from Luke is this, uh, is at the very beginning of the passage, that they were filled with expectation. It's unique to Luke's gospel. This hope for someone who can lead the people out of their current difficulties, right? They, they thought John might be the Messiah, and John says, I ain't the Messiah. Someone's coming. And they, they're filled with expectation, right? They're, they're under the oppression of Rome. They're longing to be set free. They're wondering who is going to lead them out of this. And it is Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel, baptized by John in the River Jordan, as we heard Mason tell us earlier. They're looking for someone who can lead them out of the current difficulties, I wonder what expectations we are filled with today. What expectations are we filled with today? This passage is subtly all about hope and joy. It reminds us that Jesus identifies with us in our human condition, that in the incarnation, Jesus takes on everything that it means to be human and models for us how to best live. It even shows us how to have hope and joy in the face of total bleakness. Like, what is robbing you of your hope? What is causing you to fear? And what is causing anxiety in you? What is stealing your joy today? If you're like me, there are lots of things that attempt to rob you of hope that provide an opportunity to fear and attempt to rob our joy. Advertisers promise us happiness and joy if we buy their product, so we fill our homes with things we don't need and things that don't bring us any joy. A government promises us uh, hope and a better tomorrow and then shuts down over its own dysfunction. That new job, right, offers us better vacation hours, more pay, a nicer office. And then we find ourselves in five, ten years wondering what life is all about because it's certainly not about a job. We look to our partner, our spouse, to love us because if they can't love us for who we are, then who can Friends, we've been looking for hope and joy in all of the wrong places. And so hear the good news. The only place that offers 
everlasting hope and joy is in God and God alone and in God's kingdom. It isn't our job. It isn't our bank account. It isn't our government. It isn't our education. It's not our ability or sort of our certifications. It's God and God alone. And it's in Jesus' baptism where he aligns himself with God that Jesus perfectly models for us that very reality. And that's a powerful concept to wrap our heads around, to sort of uh, think about and sit with and wrestle during this time of epiphany, that it is God and God alone who provides joy and hope to a weary world. So may we be the people who usher in joy and hope as we're the hands and feet of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.